Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. All right, welcome to the Seven Heads, Ten Horns Halloween movie special. Tonight, today, whatever time you're listening to this, we're going to be talking about two movies that we thought really matched up with some of the themes of this podcast. But before we get into all that, I mean, some people love horror movies, some people hate horror movies. Chances are, Travis, if you signed up to do a podcast about the devil, probably you don't hate them, but what's your what's your take on them? I'm really hoping that that's the case. So we've heard back from some of our listeners who are excited for more popular content and we want to make sure that their needs are met. I think that there's a big overlap though between people who are interested in devil in in the devil and its his, and the history of the devil who are interested in horror movies. So I say we just go for it and I'm looking forward to all the feedback we hear back from all of you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's something I mean I'm someone who I think I was like probably traumatized by horror movies in like early elementary school. Um, and like horror movies, probably like a little bit of even of exaggeration for what I was traumatized by. Like, I think I saw a, a Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes, like the th- kind of thing you would see on a masterpiece theater uh, on PBS with the Hound of the Baskervilles and the dog is glowing. It's, it's kind of scared the shit out of me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then my cousins were watching um, The Lost Boys, which is like this vampire 80s hair metal classic. Um that that also really really scared me uh, as a little kid. So I think I was really scared. And then by the time I had adolescence, I was like, you know, the thing that scared you or the thing that was negative, you're like attracted to. So I think I I, I was a, a horror movie watching kid uh, growing up. That's super cool. Yeah, I had a different experience. So there is there. I also felt this concern as a kid about from my parents about, you know, kids aren't supposed to watch horror movies. Horror movies are not for children. And there's this parental protection thing that's going on, you know, connected to all of our rating system with movies, lots of cultural concern about movies being disturbing to kids. But for me, my first memory of a horror movie is of one of the sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street. I remember I was in Jason McCorkle's house and i think he had a tv in his bedroom and there were some older kids there and they were watching this movie and i walked in and on the screen there was this waterbed and there was this naked woman swimming in the waterbed you could totally see boobs and that was my first i think movie watching boob experience and so i think i had this misconception that what they were hiding from me all this time was not actually blood and guts and horror but somehow blood and guts and horror were all in my mind associated with sex from a like an early age so that's my first memory of a horror movie uh i think i suspected then as a kid that sex was the real secret to horror movies and i think i wasn't wrong i think sex plays a really important role in horror movies so as we'll certainly see in today's yeah. episode yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say i mean what a what an auspicious beginning i mean because one of the movies that we decided to feature in our halloween movie special was the 
the movie that came before the waterbed boob horror extravaganza that you just described, um, which is, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street, the 1984 film directed by Wes Craven. Um, And this movie is considered one of the pioneers in the slasher genre, the genre of horror movies in which young people, adolescents, teenagers are uh, butchered on the screen, usually in a connection to engaging in promiscuous sexual behavior and drug and alcohol consumption. Their punishment in the movies is to be attacked by uh, serial killers or in the case of what we're looking at today, Freddy Krueger is is kind of more of a demon, um, and I, I sort of look at Freddy as this as this sort of secularized demon, and he he has interesting connections to other demons we've talked about in this show, but um, yeah, he is a little different than the sociopathic stalker serial killer Michael Myers archetype. Um, but yeah, I mean, Travis, had you seen? Nightmare on Elm Street before you, you obviously you saw the sequel with the waterbed um but had you had any experience with this film before I have to say I was a Freddy virgin with the exception of that brief scene before we decided to talk about this movie on the podcast so thank you Klaus yeah I think I I think I got you hooked because I was like this is Johnny Depp's you know sc- screen debut oh yeah and like, it it did not disappoint <laughs> yeah there were some excellent scenes with some football jerseys that were yeah yeah were watching football jerseys absolutely yeah. yeah so yeah so i mean just talk a little bit about the plot i mean so johnny depp uh plays the main character nancy's romantic interest he's sort of this ineffectual boyfriend he is supposed to be a jock you you mentioned the football jerseys um he's kind of supposed to be the jock boyfriend um yeah does he have the physique to pull off this role i think experts might disagree (laughs) maybe jock standards were different in the 80s but anyway yeah yeah i mean you know that's it's fair um they're more realistic but uh yeah so the movie uh is about these four teenagers who keep having horrible nightmares they live on the same street elm street it's weird. Elm Street isn't really named very often in the movie. It's got it's a very evocative title, but it doesn't really come up that much in the movie, unless I'm mistaken. Um, but these te- these these teenagers are having horrible dreams of being stalked by this guy with a burnt face who's got steak knife claws on a glove, and it's very disturbing. And they are they're all being haunted by these dreams, and eventually some of them end up getting killed in the dreams, and the whole the whole conundrum of the nightmare on elm street is if you're killed in the dream you're killed in real life um and so these teenagers are trying to stay awake especially nancy and and to a certain extent her her boyfriend her beau glenn who likes to climb into her bedroom on these these uh rose rose trellises that, that grow outside her house yeah we should um, be clear that glenn is johnny depp glenn is johnny depp glenn is johnny depp the other two teenagers who meet a gruesome end in this film are tina uh who's the first person to encounter freddy in the movie and her boyfriend rod who sort of plays the 1950s greaser leather jacket wearing misfit yeah, there were moments 
just in the aesthetic where I thought I might be watching Grease instead of a horror movie. I don't know if you got that impression. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because that, you know, this is 1984 and this is the the age of Ronald Reagan. And a lot of the appeal of the kind of conservatism that Ronald Reagan espoused and evoked was a return to the post-World War II 1950s boom and the 1950s aesthetic and the 1950s supposed value scheme. Um, So we get a lot of that. And so like Johnny Depp's driving this convertible that is from the 50s or 60s, it looks like. We have, right, as you're saying, a kind of, you know, John Travolta's uh, kid brother, you know, from Greece in in this film. Yeah, it's like, who wore it better between... I think Rod may have worn it better. I think Ron, I think Ron is, Rod is is a, is is a better greaser punk than than Travolta. Um, yeah. So there's this there's this there's this kind of um, it's at once supposed to be the 1950s and it's also at once supposed to be sort of timeless American values. And Elm Street is set it's set in in Ohio. So it's set in the middle of the country. So it's again, like sort of bolstering this like middle America, even though it looks a lot like California, let's be real. Um, (laughs) Middle America aesthetic and setting as a, as a place for where these, this brutal attack on these young people is happening. I think it's Um, also important to note the class that's represented here by the suburban setting. And it's a almost exclusively white, setting uh yeah i think there's like a black character in the high school as like an extra like it's it's yeah it's very white um and yeah middle class oriented and we're talking about the historical like the sort of the ideology of the moment that was important for culture and politics then um we might also talk a little bit about the the kind of moral anxieties of this moment and this kind of harkens back to what we talked about with the exorcist but one of the one of the things you see in this movie is that it centers the teenagers as as the the protagonists but who's missing a lot in this movie travis like who who doesn't who is not who is not showing up oh to, uh, that's easy it's the parents where are the parents in this movie? <laughs> Even when they're there, they're, we might say, morally absent, right? Yeah. There's, yeah. And that's what's so noticeable given the otherwise Reagan-esque suburban landscape here. You expect super engaged parents. You expect this concern for the teenagers to guide them on the right path and away from drugs and alcohol and you know <laughs> promiscuous sex and toward the good life reagan style and that's yeah. just not what we see by and large and so it's on the teenagers to find their own way and it's sort of a the perspective of the movie is very much it's on us and you're sort of with the teenagers emotionally and you follow their stories yeah for sure um and i, I like that point about how even when the parents are there they are morally dubious. So like Nancy's mother, like there, there isn't a shot of this woman without her hiding a vodka bottle. And we have this sense of role reversal sometimes where it seems like Nancy is 
parenting her mother. Um, and there's a other, there's another scene that reminds me of this point where uh, the police think that Rod is the one who killed Tina at first. I'm sorry, we, you know, we didn't say this at first, but it, you know, it, it's probably clear, but there's going to be a lot of plot spoilers in this episode. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street came out 36 years ago, so it's not exactly the, the freshest of hot takes here. And so, you know, if you haven't seen it, probably, if you, and you're listening to this, maybe hit pause now and go <laughs> go rent Nightmare on Elm Street on YouTube or whatever. Um, but anyway, so there's a, a hunt, a manhunt for Rod, the John Travolta lookalike, and T, uh, Nancy's father uses her as bait to lure him out. And so it's like, and he's, he's, a, he's a police officer. Um, and so there's this sense of like, not only are the parents incompetent or maybe like, you know, just too out of it to protect their children, but they're also manipulative and cruel. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of this going on in this. What about the sort of origin story of Freddy and how it intersects with this idea of morally absent parents? So Freddy doesn't come, even though we're comparing him to a demon, his origin story is not he just he ascended from hell necessarily, although we'll get we'll get into some of the reasons why he has demonic features. But in terms of where he comes from, this was a guy who lived in the neighborhood who would lure kids into this, what's the setting, Klaus? The boiler room. The boiler room, thank you. Into this boiler room and torture them and murder them with his knife hands, I guess. I'm not sure if the knife hands come into it. We don't exactly know what these original murders were like, but kids from the neighborhood would go missing and it was discovered that Freddy was the culprit. But the criminal justice system couldn't catch him out. Somebody didn't sign a warrant. The you know <laughs> that's so that point I love that point because it's so much the a, a plot device from action like shoot 'em up movies from this time Ooh, where it's yeah. like in a world gone crazy <laughs> you know, like one man one group of parents has to make things right you know uh, <laughs> so how do they make things right Klaus what do they do they kill Freddy. It's funny because Nancy's mother is so out of it through this movie, but she seems like maybe the ringleader. She has Freddy's claws in her boiler, in her in her furnace. They're like, like what's going on here? It's like, like let me come down and explain something to sweetheart. Like we we killed this dude. Yeah, that was a highly disturbing scene because you were pointing out to the, that kind of role reversal. But there was that moment where Nancy's mom has this. I need to tell you something real moment, which does seem parental. I'm letting you in now that you're a teenager, you need to know the truth about what happened. She finally starts to trust that her daughter can handle the truth, I suppose, and takes her down and shows her Freddy's claw and says, you know, he's dead. You don't have to worry about it anymore. But it's ultimately at the service of denying her daughter's own experience. There's that distrust again. And so even as you move toward a kind of, understanding between parents and the teenage kids it it's all uh it all ends up imploding so how does freddie meet his demise he's killed by this group of parents and the way they do it is they set fire to his 
to where he to the boiler room. Is that right, Klaus? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, they. I mean, I'm not, I think maybe it is the boiler. I room. think he they dies speak. in the boiler room. Yeah, and yeah, right. in any case, he's burned to death, um, and he is no more. And so that helps to explain why you know his skin looks the way it does. He died by fire. Um, and it might, if we're right about the boiler room, then it also explains why a lot of the nightmare scenes occur in this boiler room. Right, right. Um, yeah, so Freddy, so they kill him, but for whatever reason, it's not clear if there's been murders happening before the point at which the story begins with these teenagers. It's unclear, like, when the parents killed Freddy. Um, but he's here now. So let's like maybe talk a little bit about like what kind of being he is and like why we sort of thought of him in connection to uh, the demonic um, or other the- other sort of uh, religious themes that we've been discussing. Um, so like one example for me, like the, especially since Freddie is kind of an evil ghost, you know, he, yeah, they did kill him, but he's coming back. There is this link to um, something uh, I either have talked about or will be talking about in this pod, um, which is the the story of the Watchers and their children who um, are born of, of human mothers. Um, this is from the book of Genesis. And it's these angels who come down in the beginning of time and, and have sex with human women. And they have these monstrous children who are then killed through god's orders basically and these the giants their ghosts become the demons that haunt humanity so that kind of link between ghosts and the demonic was something that stood out to me as a connection um the other the other one is as we've been saying like there's a big connection to sexuality in these slasher movies yeah and if uh if you're familiar with the book of tobit um, the demon Asmodeus, who's one of our sponsors, you know, so shout out to Asmodeus, <laughs> um, is uh, his function is to pre- is to prevent th- like the sort of the um, the culmination of marriage, like you know this this sort of uh, the, the basically courtship and sex, like interrupting that. Um, and so what we get in in the slasher movies is is the revenge for that. So there's this way in which. Um, human procreation is connected to the demonic in this genre of movies that kind of links to older demonological traditions. And we also um, have running through these, this kind of interlacing non-centered Catholicism. It's present though. Yeah, we have these crucifixes yeah. randomly on walls. Yeah, everyone's like super Catholic inexplicably with that, but it's never mentioned. But they all have crucifixes. They all have crucifixes, which seems weird for Ohio, but you know, why not? It's, it's a Catholic Elm street. It's fine. And then you have the nursery rhyme rope skipping song with the little kids, the very end of the movie. That's Mm -hmm. all about Freddie. Why do they know this? Their parents taught. Anyway, I suppose nursery rhymes, you know, ashes to ashes. We all fall down, you know, ring around the rosy kind of stuff can be very dark. So sure. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. (laughs) That that, that one. Yes, that's the one. So I think you know you've got you've got that element, but it's ineffectual. You know, it's window dressing on the one hand. It's the most detailed tradition of evil available to 
I think, American mythologies of religious mythologies of evil. It's sort of the one that's closest to hand. So there's that reason that it might be. But I think it's also important that those crucifixes don't do jack in this movie. (laughs) Right? Right. You clutch that crucifix. Okay. You know, clutch your pearls. It's nothing's going to help you. It's Freddy. Right. So I think that's important. And then getting back a little closer to Freddy, let's talk about (laughs) Tina, (laughs) please God. And then Freddy, this is God. You know, he's God. Freddy is declaring himself to be God. That's an excellent moment that I really enjoyed. And I think does tie him a little bit more centrally. We begin to wonder, is Freddy just the ghost of a child, you know, killer? Or is he something more than that? Or is he just goading her? What do you think about that moment, Klaus? Well, I think when you first see it, it does seem like he's goading her. But as you look at the whole movie and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the end here, uh, there is this sense that Freddy, and this links it to this these sort of um, prototypical Satan myths in Christian tradition and Christian hermeneutics where the fallen angel who wants to be God, you know, the guy who wants to knock off the boss, that's, the, that's sort of devilish stuff. And so like Freddy usurping this divine role in this like really crude, cruel way, yeah, but he does seem to hold most of the cards throughout the movie. Um, and so towards the end, uh, Nancy has devised some scheme to sort of bring Freddy back into the real world from out of the dream world. And she remembers some advice that her boyfriend, Johnny Depp Glenn, gleaned from his perusal of the sacred books of the of the east or something i don't, I don't know where he's getting his information but um some sort of balinese demonology or nightmareology or something oh yeah uh, so where he, does he learn that totally unexplained i just feel like the character we needed a little bit of a story about how he came to know about balinese demonology i just felt that was odd but okay but so Glenn's like, oh, if you turn your back on the demon, you take away its power. It's like the bully thing. Like if you don't pay attention to the bully, then the bully, you know, kind of doesn't matter anymore. And this is really uh, ties into a big tradition in in Christianity, um, going back to St. Augustine, where evil is conceptualized as non-being or the absence of being. It's called the privative account of evil. And so this sense of Freddy, you know, Nancy's like, you're nothing, Freddy, you're shit. And she turns her back and he like lunges to, to cut her up and he disappears. And like, it's like kind of like, oh, like she's right. Like he, Freddy's evil is predicated on its nothingness. Um, and so we have on the one hand, Freddy is trying to be God. Freddy is like the mover and shaker metaphysically in this movie. And then at the end, he sort of seems to uh, fade out because she stops paying attention to him. Yes. Which is odd since she's been, he's been chasing her around trying to kill her for a while. It seems like it would be kind of hard to stop paying attention to that. But, you know, kudos. Yeah, I think it butts up against it's all just a dream. This primitive evil conception that you're pointing to, which I think is a really nice connection, Also, the way that it's presented here, I think, we're meant to question the reality. In what ways is Freddy real? You can die in a dream in this universe. So on the one hand, he has a claim to reality. But on the other, if 
Johnny Depp tells you the Balinese secret, then you can just ignore him and he goes away. So his ontological status, to use fancy words, his being, the status of his being, his existence, is very odd, I would say. It's very odd. As so, it's, as is the, the last scene of the movie, is very odd. Because it seems as if the secret you know, the secret cheat code to the Freddy Krueger video game was like, oh, like, right, it's all a dream or like, he's really nothing. And we go from Freddy being dissolved into nothingness to this like nightmarishly lucid scene where all the characters who have been murdered by Freddy are back there with Nancy. And yet it seems as though Freddy's getting the last laugh. He... A car, Glenn's 1950s convertible, has the Freddy Krueger pattern sweater for its ragtop and drives away with the kids, like sort of abducting them. And then Nancy's mother is like pulled through the window of her door very violently by Freddy Krueger. And the movie kind of just ends right there. And so we're left like, you know, like, what? I thought Freddy was nothing. I thought this, I thought that was the whole point. And yet, we have this bizarre dream-like sequence in which it seems like he does win. What what did you what sense did you make of that? I mean, frankly, I thought it was a conflict between on the one hand wanting to end the movie with a boo, with a gotcha, and that pull of a you know, you can never truly conquer Freddy, and on the other hand, this desire to undo some of the damage that we've done to this perfect picturesque Ohio street, right? You don't want those beautiful nubile teenagers to have to die over this. Right. And so I think it was just dramatizing that tension between our desire for a happy ending and our desire for a sequel, I suppose. (laughs) Sorry to just dumb it right down to no, no, I think that's fine. I think that's right. I mean, it's weird, but it's like bring them back, like bring the teenagers back so you can like drag them off again. Like it's even that's even that's even crueler, you know, like it's <laughs> Yeah. Um, the and again, this this idea of anytime you're playing with a dream, the rules kind of go out the window or pulled violently through the door in the case of Nancy's mother. So right, right. you you have that flexibility to pull <laughs> us you know, to pull us back and forth between a kind of realism where death is real and lasts and the people who are killed are super are actually dead and this possibility of non sequiturs that dreamscapes can provide there yeah yeah no that's really interesting Okay, so next we're going to be talking about a much more recent film. It was directed by Ari Aster in 2018, and it's called Hereditary, starring Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne, who both give just amazing performances. And it sits this line between a horror movie with all the thrills and chills and something much deeper. So Klaus, why don't you talk us through the plot a little bit so we can get into the conversation about the movie? Yeah, sure. So um, the main characters of the movie are Annie, 
who is an artist who does these really intense miniature dioramas. Her husband, Steve, uh, and so Andy's is Tony Collette. Steve is Gabriel Byrne. Steve is sort of her supportive, well-rounded husband. They have two children, Peter, who's the elder son, and Charlie. And so this family is the center of the story. And it, the movie begins with Annie's mother, Ellen, dying. And Annie seems a bit estranged from her mother. She's a little surprised that she doesn't recognize any of the people who showed up to Ellen's funeral. And she's a little disturbed at how ambivalent or sort of non-responsive she is to the death of her mother, which after seeing the movie should have been a, a really big warning sign, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> Agreed. But the, the sort of next major development in the movie is the horrible death of Annie's daughter, Charlie. Um, Charlie's at a party with Peter and accidentally eats some brownies that contain nuts and goes into shock. She's allergic to nuts. And Charlie's being taken by Peter to the hospital. He's trying to rush to get her to safety. He's also high as a kite. And there's a road accident and she sticks her head out the window to get air because her windpipe is constricting and she her head gets cut off. And this is one of the real turning points of the movie. It creates huge tension, as you might imagine, between Peter and especially Annie. Peter is in shock and doesn't quite react and kind of just goes home with the body of Charlie in the back of the car and just waits for his mother to discover this body. It's a terrible scene. Obviously, Annie is stricken with grief and she is going to a grief support group where she encounters another person at this group, Joan, who tells Annie that she recently has lost people in her life. And she keeps running into this woman. Again, this should have been a warning bell. <laughs> um, but Joan tells her that she has, she is able to make contact with her deceased family members through a seance. And she teaches Annie how to do this. And Annie then does the seance with her family and becomes possessed, it seems, by the spirit of her daughter. The, the problem is, as we sort of are discovering over the course of this movie, is that something was a little different with Charlie. Um, Charlie wasn't just Charlie, and Annie's mother just wasn't a normal mom. She was a member of a witch's coven who was engaged in a very long-term thinking conspiracy to reincarnate the demon King Paimon. And so this demon was possessing Charlie. And so when they do the seance, the demon possesses Annie. Um, and so as Annie starts to figure out this conspiracy, she becomes very alarmed. Her apparent grip on reality seems to loosen a little bit. I mean, the stress of that is reasonable enough. Um, and basically, I mean, we can we can go on and on with this with this plot, but a lot of increasingly disturbing supernatural sorts of things start to happen. And the climax of the movie is basically uh, this transition of this spirit, Charlie's spirit that had possessed Annie, into the body of her son, Peter. This is the sort of ultimate goal of the whole witch's conspiracy, was to get Paimon into a male host. So there are a lot of plot spoilers in that. I won't 
walk through the entire liturgy of the last scene. It's pretty disturbing. But yeah, so that's sort of the, the nuts and bolts of the way the plot moves. Is there anything that you think I should inject in there, Travis? Is that that cover it? No, I think that was an excellent walkthrough. What is a tortuous and fascinating plot? So that will, I think, kickstart our conversation now as we continue to explore the central question of the movie that the movie, I think, poses in terms of genre. And that is, wait, is this a horror movie or is this, you know, a psychological drama about a family? And it's evidently both, but how those elements overlap with each other is, I think, the movie's greatest strength. So, for example, you know, let's talk about Annie's grief for her daughter, Charlie. It's a brutal scene. She lets out these cries of grief. She is stricken with grief. She's in, she's on her hands and knees, which, you know, is one of the positions for birthing children and recalling that the trauma that is birth in this trauma of death, I think, is just incredibly powerful. And it's one of the ways where you see the tenderness of the connections between characters who otherwise are sometimes short with each other under the incredible tensions that they're in. There are these little digs that they commit against one another, but through it all you see also this this tenderness, this affection. Definitely, yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think one of the places that stood out to me for that was even during the the moment where Charlie is choking from this allergic reaction to nuts, she's has a pretty strange relationship with her brother and yet he carries her back to the car in this way that he's like cradling her like a child and it's it's there's a kind of tenderness to that even in that emergency moment where he is really desperate to help this member of his family even if things are a little strange and that really stood out to me another another example is is earlier right before this scene when charlie has a vision of her grandmother who, who is who is dead there are, there are a bunch of these sorts of spectral apparitions that p- appear in the movie. And we can talk about the kind of reality factor with that later. But Charlie's sort of reverie is interrupted by Annie. And Charlie's just this sort of like plaintively like just says, I want grandma in this way that I can kind of recognize my, my own kids saying about a, about a family member. Like, I, I want grandma. And right. like, we already know, we don't know everything by this point in the movie, but we know this woman is no good. <laughs> right. And in particular, her connection with her granddaughter is a little strange. We have in one of, in, in one moment, for example, we see Annie's art. She makes these miniatures that show sometimes pictures of her life, especially emotionally charged moments from her life. And in one of these miniature scenes, we see her mother, Ellen, is nursing Charlie, her daughter. So you have this grandparent nursing the kid. And it's so intense because the way that that's established in the miniature is that Annie is is in bed because she's just given birth. And her yeah. mother appears like breast out of shirt and is taking the child away from her. It's like, it's, it is uncannily bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, once you know, you're in the know, you realize that this has to do with Ellen is planting within her family the ground for demonic possession of her granddaughter. That's what's going on, I think, there. 
and and we, and we have clues of that before too um with the way in which uh Annie reports that her her older brother committed suicide because he as he said in, I guess in a suicide note his mother was trying to put people inside of him you know so this is this is a oh wow yeah, yeah. right so the, the it's it's pretty clear if you're looking for patterns in the plot that trying to insert like foreign intelligences into human beings is a recurring aspect of this film. Yeah. Well, let's turn to the charming thing theme of decapitation. It brings together both the horror movie shock that you expect, the blood and guts, the gore, alongside and in conversation with the family psychological drama. So for example, the death of Charlie, I think really brings us to this moment at several times during the movie. You watch the horrible auto accident and so you you are there for the trauma and there's the blood and gore factor to it. You get a shot later of the head as it's you know being eaten over by ants. It's crawling with ants. So there's it's played up for the shock on the one hand, but it's also remembered as part of someone's very personal grief of their child. Annie talks about, to her friend Joan, she talks about what happened at Joan's house and says, and I had to find, I did discover the body and the head wasn't there, you know? And so you get to, you experience the, both sides of that moment of decapitation and how it's bringing together classic horror movie uh, blood and guts with this deep emotional pain that usually horror movies are so happy to skip right over, right? It's decontextualized. It's not to be grieved by the moviegoer. And here we, we have to do that, some of that at least. But we also see decapitation very early in the movie, right? With Charlie, who is cutting off bird heads. I think it's outside her school, right? Woof! So we've got a little bit of, you know, the creep factor going on with, um, with that, of course, the horror movie side. But we're also foreshadowing the very real and psychologically scarring decapitations that will happen. And of course, there are, there are mm-hmm. more than one that are going to happen later in the movie. Um, and we get this model for demonic possession. So Klaus, do you want to talk us through that part? Like, how does this relate to the demon exactly? These various bodies and figures that get de- decapitated. Yeah, I mean, my take on that is the demon seems to move when heads are removed and so the one example in the in the climax is um annie when fully possessed by the demon uh decapitates herself and that's how the demon's able to get out of her body and go into into peter's body yeah and i think it's underlined also in that final sort of demonic liturgy scene with the statue of king paimon atop which is the head of you know it's it's in a somewhat human form and the head is the decapitated head of charlie so we see again that association with the demon and decapitation yeah so on the one hand i think there's a really significant metaphor in that uh but there's also this kind of crude mechanistic what i would call pneumatology which is is a account of of spirits and you need to have this violent separation between head and body for the spirit to move out of the body um which seems you think about other films that we we, we talked about the exorcist before and 
the demon can possess you in different ways, but it seems like there, you don't need this very uh, determined mechanical operation for you know popping the top off a bottle as it were for getting the the fluid out uh the demon just moves when the demon wants to move um so we get that and and it's it's very it's very like i would say crudely mechanical and yet you have this metaphoric register uh whereby the the theme of switching identities gets played out where it's like, oh, you just, it's like almost like a paper doll thing where you like, oh, you just take this head and put it on that body. And that in some ways like kind of gets at the hereditary quality of the story where it's like, oh, where it's all in the same family. You can just move the heads around and like, you know, every, everyone's part of the same group and, and uh, our heads are kind of portable. Our actual identity is epiphenomenal or secondary to this bigger secret that we're all part of. So uh, we've talked about Annie's art. What is Annie's like way in the world? Like how does she seem to get things done? Like what what sorts of features of her personality stand out in this movie? I think from the very beginning, we know that Annie's an unusual person. The way that she eulogizes her own mother that you've already pointed to, we don't expect a kind of standard heroine here, but we get a portrait of a successful artist who works in these incredible miniatures, recreating these rather disturbing scenes, but just fascinating kind of uh, stuff and deeply psychological. She seems, and this is important to note, opaque to herself. She has shockingly little insight at critical junctures, especially in her parenting. So there's a scene that's not shown, but it's referred to, at a few different points in the film. And it's one in which Annie has evidently gone into the shared bedroom of her two children while sleepwalking, unbeknownst to her. She is sleepwalking and she does this. She douses them all in, what is it, lighter fluid? No, something. Paint, paint, paint thinner. thinner, that's paint right. Thinner. And paint She's thinner. an artist, she's an artist. Right, of course, <laughs> right. She douses them and herself in paint thinner. She lights a match and wakes up before she tosses it. And what's amazing about this incident is she doesn't understand why Peter still holds this against her, why Peter doesn't fully trust her. So there's a scene in the film that you actually do witness where she's sleepwalking and enters his bedroom, and that's all layered as part of that. But there's this refusal to acknowledge that, wow, that's really messed up. Like, my friend's moms don't do that. They don't try to kill themselves and their children in their sleep. Like, what's going on there? And no insight that maybe her unconscious mind has some stuff that needs to be sorted out to keep everyone safe. So, Klaus, tell me what you thought about the scene where she has just woken up from sleepwalking. She's in her son's bedroom. She has this vision of her son, which has not happened, but he's crawling with ants, just as in reality, her daughter's head had been crawling with ants. She sees this. It's very... Um, Candyman, actually, with the bees. But we see this vision, she wakes up, and then she starts saying really disturbing things to her son, Peter. She says, I never wanted kids, that her mother, Ellen, had bullied her into having another kid. Of course, we now know, after having watched the film, that you know Ellen was trying to get her to have a male child, probably to house this demon, but anyway. And then when she does it, the performance is just amazing. It's like this confession that I never wanted to have you 
escapes out of her mouth just like Pandora's box. It just slips out and she immediately covers her mouth with her hand. But of course, it's it's too late. So what do you make of that scene when we think about any psychology? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned opacity um, and this sense of being at odds with herself. Like there's a moment where early on, it's even before I believe Charlie dies, where she's talking about how she just feels like everything's been ruined. And she's always sort of speaking about herself passively in the passive voice. Mm -hmm. She's like, I am blamed. I am blamed. And this sense of not really being in control seems something that she's really struggling with and connects to the art where she's like creating, she's recreating every facet of her life um, in excruciating detail. And it's a way you can see of control. But that scene that you're referring to, the, the words escape from her mouth in a way that connects to this theme of possession where you're not in control and the demon speaks through you. It's sort of a more mundane, but you know, very tragic version of that where these family relationships are being, all the scars are being torn open. For me, the other thing that comes out with that question of seeking control through the art is Annie does these very detailed miniature representations of her family's life and she's a successful artist she's got important deadlines she's got these exhibitions and yet the miniaturization i think is a clue that there's there's something there that, that she's doing a miniature version of 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 what her mother's doing her mother's her mother who's dead we we only see her as a special apparition is is the puppet master right yeah and annie's like kind of futilely copying that gesture in the miniatures yeah it's a it's a search for control an unsuccessful search for control there Yeah. yeah and i love the way you're you're drawing that connection to possession i absolutely think that that contest for holding down your life holding down your reality in the face of trauma and tragedy that search for sanity is very much the kind of psychological version of the supernatural drama that we're getting where the demon takes over a body much more you know literally in in like a horror movie right and they they the brilliance of the movie is how fluid and overlapping and re- mutually reinforcing both of those challenges are for the characters lives like the real psychological family dynamics and then the demonic witch's coven conspiracy that really builds on that foundation very well yeah and 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 lays the foundation it builds on the foundation and ellen laid that foundation you know so yeah it's interesting that it's mentioned that ellen had dissociative identity disorder which we used to call multiple personality disorder because i think that's a window yet again into the question of demonic possession and of madness which we see in the film really more centered on the character of annie um, but which has this backstory that is, you know, according to the title, it's hereditary, right? The question, has she inherited mental illness? Has she inherited demonic possession? You know, what's going on here? Annie is always on the brink. She, between that sense of someone trying to hold her family together and someone who's lost control. But I love in the performance by Tony Collette that 
we don't see a lot of hysterical woman tropes that are that are leaned on even though similar questions about control and sanity are are at play and i don't actually know how she pulls that off but it her pleas to her husband for example i think it's something in their interaction the way that he sees that she wants to save her family every action she takes even if it's holding a seance has some relation to reality has some relation to care for her family and that's why it can't be dismissed i think as oh she's just a crazy hysterical woman i think that's what keeps the drama grounded yeah yeah i think you're right i think that she does have this powerhouse performance in this i and i think but you're right in saying that it has a lot to do with her chemistry with gabriel byrne uh who's also an accomplished actor and I see when you look at the credits of the film, they're also both executive producers of the film. Oh, really? So not only I, not only is the is the chemistry like there and the acting like they very much are invested in this whole process and this whole product. So uh, it's interesting to see how that it's really layered on. Okay, well, I feel like since we are doing a podcast on the history of the devil, we would be remiss if we didn't say something about King Paimon. So I guess. <laughs> House is good at times. He's, he's, he's a python. He's like a snake. Python. Sadly, pi- no. Paimon. Yeah. Pie man. He's a pie man. Pie he man. loves he, pie. He loves pie. He loves pies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's always got a. He's always got a thumb in the. Pie. Yeah, and you yeah. know the decapitation. So it's like his head is actually a pie. That would be amazing. I really wish that were the case. Um, it's not. Although there are some sources that say speaking of the head thing, I suppose this is a connection. Perhaps. You know where does this decapitation theme come from? Okay, what do we know about King Paimon? His name appears in a text called The Lesser Key of Solomon, has some other names too, uh, which is an anonymous 17th century grimoire. And what is a grimoire? It's a, it comes from the word grammar, actually. And it's an instructional book of magic. It tells you, how do you make your amulets? How do you cast your spells? You know, how do you perform this stuff? And it was, um, it, ha- it, it lists names of important figures. And so, King Paimon is listed in that, I think that is the first source I could find where the name is dropped, but it's elaborated in a lot of later sources. And so what's some of the, what are some of the characteristics of King Paimon that we get from these sources? Um, one is that his face in some of these later sources is feminine or is even a woman's face. And so while the rest of the body is male, he rides atop a dromedary, which is a camel, kind of camel, um, and can be summoned to give the conjurer wisdom and knowledge of various kinds. So, you know, my questions going to the historical archive were, where does the gender thing about King Paimon wanting a male host, where does that come from? And I think so far I haven't found anything to suggest that it isn't made up by the uh, for the for the purposes of the film, except that there is some sort of gender mixing going on between that feminine face and the rest of the demon's body. So there's that. But I'm just now realizing that that disparity between the gender of the face and the body has some suggestion, perhaps, of the the head being different from the body, which kind of pushes us maybe slightly toward this theme of decapitation that shows up all over the film. Well, yeah, considering think? that in the statue in the de- the demonic liturgy at the end it's charlie's head 
atop the representation of the male body. So yeah, that you know maybe it's oh, uh, yeah maybe maybe it checks out pretty well. Okay, I mean um, yeah, it lines up with some other you know anxieties about gender that show up through the film, particularly particularly around Charlie, because of course Ellen wants that male host. She tells her granddaughter, "I wish you had been a boy," which of course. But what's so? But you know, but what's weird about this plot point is that Paimon wants a male host. The firstborn is male. You know, yeah. Peter is older than Charlie, yeah. but they make this point in the film that um, Steve, especially Annie's husband, their father, Charlie and Peter's father, really insisted on keeping distance between Helen, Ellen rather, and the rest of the family because her manipulative tendencies were like pretty well known to everyone at that yeah. point. But it seems like that discipline broke down by the time uh, Annie had Charlie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Good. Okay, so why don't we sort of zoom out a little bit now and talk about these two films that we talked about this episode. So, first of all, on the kind of metaphysics of evil. How do these two films account for the presence of evil? So in Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, this question about the nature of Freddy, because Fr- Freddy is our personification of evil in that film. And we've hinted at this in our early dis- earlier discussion, but is Freddy nothing? If you don't believe in Freddy, if you turn away from Freddy, is he transparent? Does he disintegrate? Or is Freddy, as he claims, God, right? There's a, there's a sense that the evil has a kind of metaphysic reality in the film that can't be denied and yet we do have at least one scene where that's questioned which brings up I think the whole notion of what is dreaming in the film what is reality which are central questions what's your take first of all on evil in Nightmare on Elm Street well I think it all kind of hinges on what you think happens at the end because right we have the question of whether Freddy is nothing you're you're nothing Kruger you're shit that kind of thing Uh, (laughs) channel my my Nancy or you know this is God and he looks at his steak knife studded glove I think the movie sort of wants to have it both ways sometimes and uh, I think that that's tied up with the way in which dreaming is reflective of real anxieties and yet it's not real life right (laughs) so i think i think it kind of wants it both ways i think um it sort of does want this primitive account of evil to stand as a point while at the same time showing that that the sort of mildew quality of the primitive account of evil is uh sticking to is is growing very rapidly in our dreams and in the sort of dreams of individuals but also in sort of like our cultural dreams it's sort of it's 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 growing in these, these shady places Okay, well, let's turn to Hereditary then, because I think there's a similar kind of ambiguity going on. On the one hand, it seems like the demonic is real. It's undeniable that there is a demonic presence at work, even though it's moving through human actors as a kind of puppet master. But is it more complicated than that? Because you also have the mental illness layer, the mental health layer, the the DID that we talked about as one part of that, the brother who committed suicide, um, which, which may have been related to or interpreted as mental illness, whether it was or not. Um, so it seems like there's some ambiguity there as well. 
what do you make of that? Um, I think that, yeah, my, my impression of Hereditary is that in terms of like its metaphysics and ontology, like the demon world is real. Um, so there is a uh, kind of literalist aspect of the demon world in which the seance works, the possession works. We see these lights flashing that are sort of signals of the demon's spiritual presence. It's kind of like the exorcist that way. Uh, the demon, the demonic world is real in a, in a very aggressive way. And yet, yeah, there is these psychological questions, which in some ways I think you can read as red herrings. Um, you know, Annie isn't crazy unless, unless we're, unless we're to take ourselves as being crazy as the, as the, you know, the, uh, the spectator of this film based on what it shows us there. I don't see a lot of clues to tell us that this isn't really happening, you know, in the film especially when it shifts from Annie's perspective. If it all had stayed Annie's perspective, you could find ways to make that argument, I think. But the perspective of the movie shifts at the end and the demonic world still applies. Um, But you're right. I think beyond whether it's mental illness is the question of family trauma. And I think it wants the demonic to live very comfortably in that space of evil the space of trauma and uh these family relationships that have a lot of positive aspects but yet also reinstantiate these negative dynamics yeah i think i love that you pay attention to the freedom with which the concept of evil in hereditary moves between the domestic sphere the quotidian everyday kind of evil that lives within the bitterness between overworked and stressed out spouses and the more dramatic i'm climbing upside down on the ceiling and decapitating myself with a piano string kind of evil it's all it's all connected it's all the piece that's the that's that's the strength of the movie is that yeah. they are they're almost seamless, uh, those two those two factors. And the one is sadly very recognizable. And then the, the demonic is like the freak out part. But what makes the movie so dreadful, and I mean that with all compliments, is how they, how the, uh, the family trauma part pulls the demon part into the world of, into like our reality. And I think that that's what's so scary about it. Yeah, so if we can't read Hereditary as oh, it was all just mental illness. There's no, you know, if it's pretty clear on the one hand that there is a usually invisible demonic reality behind things, then can we say that maybe both films talk about ultimate realities that are secret and hidden behind the everyday, both in the case of Freddy and in the case of um, King Paimon, right? That there's, and therefore that, the question of belief becomes, I think, important for both. You have to kind of believe in evil in both senses. In Nightmare on Elm Street, that circle of belief is really limited to the teenagers. The adults don't get it. I wonder about thinking about hereditary that way. Who gets it? It seems that we as the viewers are let in slowly. And then Annie starts to understand. But unfortunately, through the seance, she's possessed herself at one point right 
Yeah, she and she's possessed through the seance, but she's also herself for a lot of it. And a certain point, yeah. it switches. Yeah. It reminds me of it, to get to get too far off off topic, but it reminds me of Twin Peaks, where certain characters can be themselves, and then they're possessed by characters from the yeah. Black Lodge, like Bob. Um, it can happen, and like you're yourself, mm-hmm. you're Leland Palmer, and then the flash, and you're not anymore. Um, and so that that's what happens with her. But I think Peter, like Peter, is able to witness the seance scene when Andy starts speaking like Charlie and he's very, very, very upset. So I think Peter gets it. Steve never really seems to buy in to the reality of what's happening. He, he, he Steve is the person who's like, you're very sick. You're very, very sick. But he lets things happen. He does let the, you yeah, know? he does. He, so I think it, he's not all the way convinced, but that, that again gets back to this question of belief, right? There are these shades in between of, He's sort of our, I would say, almost an agnostic, even though he's seeking for help on the kind of mundane quotidian mental health side. He's leaving space for her to try the seance, even though he doesn't want to. He's resistant. And I think that's part of that. The way I read that uh, is that's sort of he's like basically supportive, it seems like, through the movie. But that's I think it's supposed to be a moment where that kind of supportive personality has has its limits exposed where he's like yes. kind of going along with it he he's he's like grouchy but he let it sit happen and it's almost supposed to be like this uh this moment where passivity fails or like we're we're, we're like being we're, we're trying to be supportive and 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 not being domineering and this sort of again gets into gender anxieties i think with with the film but it's like this treaty of Munich moment. It's like it's like you let you let it happen. You you let you let the evil thing happen when when you did that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So he, I think that's sort of this indictment in some ways of of like what would normally be a a pretty decent way of interacting with your family. And in this moment, it's like no, that's what lets this all happen. So speaking of, you know, your family. And care for your family. Talk about my family. My family. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's do some psychoanalysis. No. Uh, Let's talk about parenthood in both films. Let's do a little comparing here. So I don't think we have any... Do you think Steve is an award-winning parent, actually? What do you think about Steve? Steve might might come out the least indicted of the parents in these two films. It's hard. I do think that he is like in a normie way the best he he's concerned with his he's paying attention more at least especially in the first half like he's yeah i think he's a little bit more on top of it and he's very protective of peter especially after charlie dies he is very angry with annie for getting in these fights with peter i i think you're right on the other hand annie risks it all she risks being labeled crazy she she does things she's obviously not comfortable with, learns how to do a seance. She's willing to go for these extremes and even to sacrifice her own life when she has to, she thinks she has to destroy this journal of her, of Charlie's. Oh, oh, and, and she does sacrifice her own life. Right. Oh, that's true. She thinks she does and then she actually does. Does it save her family? No. But there's the self-sacrificial part of her style of her parenting style oh goodness i don't know if i'm comfortable with this 
terminology, but um, just lean in, lean into that. Just yeah. lean into it. That she, we see her caring a lot about her children, not perfectly, not always in the quote unquote right way, but I think that that's remarkable. Uh, whereas we have much flatter, of course, depictions of what parenthood parenthood looks like in. Nightmare on Elm Street, which seems not to care so much about that relationship, and is very interested in uh, having parents as the those who don't get it, the teenagers are who the, are the ones who understand the world as it is, and they're constrained by the parents who are, in fact, alcoholic and don't get it and, and whatnot. Yeah, right. But I think that, you know, unsurprisingly, Hereditary's picture of parenthood is more interesting and dynamic and uh, com- complex. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Yeah, there's something sort of cartoonish about the parents in Nightmare on Elm Street that I think speaks to a kind of moral anxiety about the status of the family that we saw in Exorcist and we see in almost all of these movies, I think. Yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's what's going yeah. on there. Um, and they're, yeah, they're very flat. Tina's dad is away in Vegas. Mother's alcoholics. You know, it, it's sort of, yeah, it's just sort of littered with that. Um, but they, you know, we talked about the hidden backstory or the hidden structure. I mean, the parents in Nightmare are also the ones who conspired to kill Freddy. And so they are, even if they are sort of flat, they are part of the, uh, the sinister plot architecture. True. And, you know, they're trying to resolve a problem through murder, maybe not the best solution to all problems, but when they, when they're able to recognize the threat to their children they act decisively to protect them at their own at the risk of getting caught so i think there are some parental instincts there that are you know maybe not applied perfectly but are recognizably about caring and protecting their kids yeah um let's talk about endings okay so <laughs> nightmare on elm street we talked a little bit about the ending already so what's going on what's a dream and what isn't a dream we've got the car pulling off into the distance, but it's Freddy's colors. His clothing colors are now on the top of the convertible as they ride off into the distance. Nice, nice sound effect there. That uh, car that really captured oh, yeah. that moment. <laughs> I planned that on purpose. I just, that was my sound design happening just then. So you've got that. You've got the mom no longer needs to drink alcohol. She doesn't have the urge anymore, honey, right? All the problems are resolving. All of the dead children have resurrected and everything's fine. Or is it? And then Freddie is, you know, his threatening presence is felt both in the car and then also whisking mom back through the through the doorway, you know, see you in the in the sequel kind of a thing. So that's one ending. I'm not in love with it. They obviously want Freddie to be able to come back. They want to resurrect the, the kiddos because, you know, killing kids kind of sucks. Um, and it's supposed to be, I think, aimed at a kind of lightheartedness. Like, this is just a horror. It's just a slasher flick that we're, you know, we're inventing this genre that doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, we want you to have the, the thrills, but not really have to worry about the human elements of loss that otherwise we'd be grieving at the end of the movie, right? That's all that the characters could do. Everybody's dead. I think we said, though, bringing them back to kill them again is like pretty... <laughs> <laughs> well, but you kill them in the next movie, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, but I think by suggestion, if the car that's shaped like Freddy is driving off with them, they do not have much longer to to abide in this world. Mm, um, fair, fair. So, okay. You know, um, so maybe we're just lost in the perpetual nightmare at that point. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And it's strange because Nancy pulled Freddy out of the dream world before that all happened. And so there's like the question of like, how did we get back into the dream world? Well, but maybe she 
disturbed the you know space-time continuum between our universes by pulling him through because he is ultimately only a nightmare or or she never actually did all that stuff with uh maybe maybe that's you know maybe maybe you know it was all a dream but but that's all for the worst it's all a dream exactly yeah it's turtles all the way down exactly yeah yeah for sure dream dream turtles (laughs) so uh the ending of hereditary yeah if you if you google it it seems like there are a lot of like faqs and guides for the perplexed about the ending of hereditary um i I don't know why doesn't everyone know about king paimon i mean like well they they know now um (laughs) (laughs) but we would say that you know i think that my 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 vibe with nightmare is if it's not controversial it should be because it's also so confusing audiences found the hereditary ending pretty confusing at least when I judging by all this. Um, yeah. So we have, uh, that's like sort of a nice point of, of comparison. They both end in ways that are maybe not completely satisfying. And so like, what, what are some ways in which the hereditary ending is a little bit, I don't know, not totally up to snuff. Well, I mean, one is that I think there aren't, there isn't enough information about King Paimon. We have a brief glimpse at a couple of pages in a book and King Paimon is not part of popular lore. People don't know who this demon is or the fact that there's a whole elaborated early modern demonology where the devil has underlings who are named and who have sort of characteristics and personalities and that they're involved in witchcraft. The connection here between the witch's coven who worships this demon you know, people might be able to draw on cultural knowledge about, you know, demons and witches are kind of related, you know, you know, the devil worship and is part of the witchcraft lore. Maybe people might know that much, but I think there, there just weren't enough context clues for people to follow along. I think we need to, to do a little bit more teaching about the King Paimon lore for people to pick up on all the ways it's been embedded in the film that we've just gone through. On the other hand, there's been some criticism about, you know, where the movie was going. It seemed to be a movie about Annie, ultimately. She was our protagonist. We knew the most about her psychology. We saw her own traumas enacted through the art and lived out in her life and her desperate search to protect her own children and her family from these unknown forces was really captivating and interesting. And then what happens at the end? One way of seeing it is that we get this bait and switch and actually the movie the whole time, and this is A.O. Scott's theory, the, the movie the whole time really was about Peter and about, you know, or otherwise said about a kind of biography of the demon and the demon's the protagonist. And so that's one of the critiques of the film. There's, you know, uh, about where it's going. It seems, in other words, like the movie took a hard left turn right at the end and left viewers going, wait, where did this come from? So, I don't know. I I love the way that these two elements of the film, the supernatural and the family drama, come together. I just think if they'd given a couple more clues to the audience about where the mythology comes from, they would have been able to piece it together more. It wouldn't have been a great scene, um, how, how do you give that that history, that information? You would have had to lengthen, you know, Annie's discovery of those books or something, or have her talk about it to Joan, which would have been a downer for the drama of it. But that's my take. Yeah, I think that that's part of the the charm in some ways is is letting subsequent viewings stitch all that stuff together. So I do want to talk about the devil just a little bit more in each of these films. 
where do you find the devil in each of these? You know, is the is the devil buried in our psyches and our dreams? No, there are certainly elements of external demons in both of these movies. We are seeing Freddy Krueger as a kind of demon. I don't think you have to. I think you can interpret him as a kind of nightmare figure, a dead guy, a ghost. I suppose that's fine. But Hereditary, you can't get away from the, from the demonological in that movie. But what, again, we've pointed to already, I think, is that the supernatural elements, the demonic and hereditary, serves as a kind of amplification or dramatization of what is ordinary family drama and difficulty and loss and tragedy. Yeah, what do you think, Klaus, about um, the demonic in Nightmare on Elm Street? Do you, th- do you think I have undersold the demonic in that, in that film? Well, I think the demonic... Uh, can be understood as as sort of this function. So I think Freddy is sort of secularized as a demon. He functions as a demon. Um, there isn't an elaborate demonology to the film. I mean, I do say, I think I said earlier that there is a tradition of understanding demons as being the ghosts of sinister beings. And so you, you, you kind of do have that tradition of demons being these malevolent ghosts who attack people um, in uh, the Jewish and Christian tradition. Um, right. So there is a, there's a conceptual link, whether intentional or not, probably not, but it, it sort of suggests that this kind of stock type is drawing, it's, it's, it's sort of drawing on a deeper history and a tradition. Apart from that, just the you know the superpowers and and the um, he has a backstory but he's mostly just there to sadistically kill you. You don't have quite that sort of you don't have the yeah he's he's personified evil. Whereas it's a little bit more in some ways I would say that's less terrifying than the way evil is translated into these family relationships in Hereditary, where um, you could have a affectionate relationship and yet the whole structure and certain personalities are are um, using those familial instincts and relationships to carry out a very long-term thought-out plan to incarnate a demon. Like, that's a little bit more scary to me. Um, <laughs> but you had a, you know, in terms of where the devil is and, and, and whatnot, we, we spoke about The Exorcist before, and there's different homages to... Um, horror classics in hereditary so the witch's coven conspiracy with kids and stuff really harkens back to rosemary's baby and then there's also an interesting allusion to the exorcist especially the the endings of both movies like could you explain that a little bit that kind of connection that that thematic repetition oh yeah for sure so at the end of the exorcist we have we have a priest who's our Christ figure, I suppose, who takes on muscular the, Christianity. Yeah, muscular Christianity, who takes on, is possessed by, bravely, you know, is possessed by this demon so that he can destroy the demon and uh, save the girl who was possessed. So the demon transfer kind of jumps into him and he then jumps out the window, killing himself and releasing th- and saving the girl. Um, so here we also have a jumping out the window moment where Peter, who has just been, or is it, who is about to be perhaps uh, 
possessed by this demon who has just seen his mother possessed by the demon kill herself, his reaction is to jump out the window. And my first instinct when I watched it was like, oh, he's trying to save everyone or he's trying to conquer this evil malignancy in his family. It's not just a straight, simple suicide. I can't handle this. So (laughs) I don't think most viewers, if they didn't have The Exorcist in mind, would think that. But that was my first reaction to it. And what's interesting about what happens in Hereditary is that unlike in The Exorcist, where that really does resolve our conflict, that's the occasion for Peter's own possession, which seems to happen visually. We see that sparkly, silvery stuff sort of enter him after he's jumped off and is in the flower bed, right? So that's where I saw some overlap there, that kind of homage between the two. Homage, yeah, homage and total reversal. Right. Right, as you're saying, it works It, it works for the uh, boxing psychologist priest to kill himself after being possessed. Uh, it does not work as a way out. <laughs> it doesn't work out, that don't work out so well for poor Peter, who then becomes, you know, he's a host at that point to the demon. Yeah. And that's sort of yeah. curtains yeah. after that. Yeah, I, I thought that was really, and I think that for for horror movie buffs, probably you were saying we had just watched it, and so you saw it right away. I think I'm amazed I haven't seen it in in different searches I've done on this movie because I think it's pretty clear um, as I think more about it. Given the other other allusions to different movies, uh, it, it's it's really stands out, and they both happen at the end. Um, so I, th- I think right. I think it's right. Okay, cool. Well. Next time on Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the history of Halloween. This time we really got to do something different. Thanks for coming along the ride with us. We talked about a couple of horror movies and their relationship to the history of the devil. So next time, what are we going to do, Klaus? Well, we're going to get into the uh, sort of Anglo-Celtic origins of what are recognizably Halloween practices in the United States today. And we'll make the link between watching scary movies and you know carving out your rutabagas for jack-o'-lanterns we'll sort of make that make that leap so yeah bringing it all together perfect okay well thanks for listening yeah see you next time this pod is made possible by support from the satanic horde asmodeus mammon leviathan beelzebub and listeners like you thank you